Hello and welcome to Crafting the Crypto Economy. I am Silvia Sanchez, Project Manager at Owl Explains by Ava Labs, and today we bring you a transformative podcast series in partnership with the Crypto and Blockchain Economic Research Forum. This series features leading faculty from renowned global universities exploring various elements in the blockchain ecosystem. These episodes are a bit longer than our usual hootenannies since we will be getting very deep. And also, each episode will have its accompanying paper posted on our website for further reading. And with that, I will hand it over to our moderators, Fahad Saleh and Andreas Park. Hello and welcome everybody to the Crafting the Crypto Economy podcast series presented by OWL and Cyber, the Crypto and Blockchain Economics Research Forum. Um, I'm here, I'm Andreas Park. Um, I'm here together with Fahad Saleh and Gianmarc Moalemi. Um, and what we're trying to do in this podcast series very broadly is to explain to the audience how new applications emerge in the world of decentralized finance uh, based on blockchain technology. Now, one of the biggest innovations, in my opinion, in, in this space is the emergence of so-called automated market makers. It's a genuinely new trading institution, and there's a lot that needs to be understood. Um, there's a lot of development still going on in the space. And uh, what we try to do as academics, we try to bring some clarity to the workings and maybe the underlying mechanisms that drive these innovations. Um, we're very excited to have uh, Chia Mark Moalemi here to talk about his work on automated market makers. And I believe that uh, it helps us greatly to understand how um, these systems work. Now, what we're trying to do in this podcast series is we try to be appealing to both a general audience that just wants to get started and get uh, a loose idea of how this works. And then also we want to keep it sufficiently interesting for those that have very deep background knowledge and maybe more interested in some of the nitty-gritty details. So with that, um, maybe we should just uh, dive right into it. Um, Fahad, do you want to maybe start off with asking Siamak some questions? Well, um, why don't we actually start by uh, having Siamak maybe uh, uh provide some context on his own work, just a, as an overview, as an introduction to our audience. So, uh, Siamak, um, you know, please uh, take yeah, the floor. That's a good idea, actually. Siamak, who are you anyway? So let's, go, let's start with you and <laughs> introduce you. Thanks, guys. Um, and, and, and thanks for, for inviting me here. It's a, it's a pleasure. Um, so I'm a, a, a professor at Columbia University. Um, uh, my main um, uh, research interests are twofold. Um, first of all, I'm quite interested in um, uh, stochastic control, dynamic programming, um, uh, these type of methodological issues, um, problems where you have to make decisions over time and there's significant uncertainty about the future modeled uh, through probability. And of course, I'm not a pure mathematician. I teach in a business school, so I'm interested in applications. And the main applications I think about are in quantitative finance. So things like uh, quantitative trading, um, you know, market microstructure, and um, uh, so forth. And um, in, in the past few years, I've become uh, quite interested in blockchain as well, um, which is uh, which is presumably why I'm here today. Um, you know, I, I started out with some work maybe um, uh, five or six years ago on uh, transaction fee economics of, uh, of L1s and so forth. Um, uh, but really, I got much more excited. Uh, you know, in uh, um, you know late 2020, early 2021, um, when I started to learn about DeFi. Um, being a market microstructure person. It's, uh, you know, very natural to, um, you know, sort of uh, be interested in this, in this new type of microstructure. And, um, you know, the, the origins of, uh, of DeFi and in particular decentralized exchanges 
um, uh, um, you know, they go back to um, a, a line of work in um, this area called prediction markets, um, you know, back in the, the, the 2000s. And I had worked in, in, in that area also. Um, uh, and, um, you know, when, when I first heard about ideas like, uh, like Uniswap, uh, um, I was like, this is a bad idea. There's no way it can work. It's based on this old prediction market literature. That stuff never took off, you know, so on and so forth. And obviously I was massively wrong. And, uh, you know, the proof is, is in the pudding. The, the, the fact that, you know, by some metrics, Uniswap is probably the most popular, um, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, applications on blockchain that there is. And so I always think there's something yeah, right. uh, interesting well, to be learned. I you for a second there. Uh, so this is actually, I find it very interesting how you describe this. I think almost everybody who has actually worked on on these markets that I've talked about, on, on particular on Uniswap, on, on, on these constant product, automated market makers and so on, had the same idea. They look at this and they go, how, how is this possible? This can't possibly make sense. Um, and then, you know, anybody who looks at it actually gets rather excited about it. So maybe explain a little bit about your journey. What what is it that actually got you excited about it, other than you just being wrong and it being used? Well, actually, well, before before you take that question, though, um, just to level set our audience, we don't know how how many people in our audience here are, are totally familiar with what we mean yet by automated market making, etc. Uh, Siama, could you just kind of maybe uh, describe to sort of uh, a relatively lay person uh, what an automated market automated market maker is? Good. Um, so the, the, the starting point is that um, uh, you want to trade on chain, right? So you want um, to have a decentralized exchange as opposed to a centralized exchange. In a centralized exchange, which would be something like Coinbase or, or, or Binance or, heaven forbid, FTX, um, you have to um, uh, um, trust somebody, whoever's operating that exchange. Maybe they're in custody of your assets. Um, uh, we know all kinds of things can go wrong there and, and, and have uh, um, uh, gone wrong. So uh, I think there was a, a you know a, a vision that uh, um, uh, look you know um, uh, we should implement exchanges as, as smart contracts right um, you know sort of like everything uh, um, uh, else on, on on a blockchain if we can have it as a smart contract it can be the mechanics can be executed through a blockchain in a, um, a trustless fashion and maybe we can uh, um, uh, avoid some of these issues that have uh, come up with uh, um, a centralized exchange. Now, um, uh, going back to, you know, how, how centralized exchanges work, um, really the dominant paradigm, maybe, you know, 90 plus percent of, uh, you know, liquid electronic markets are, um, uh, is, is, is sort of the electronic uh, um, a limit order book, right? And so, you know, maybe the starting point would be like, look, if we want a, uh, um, a, a good mechanism for decentralized exchanges, we should take that mechanism for centralized exchanges, which is this, this limit order book, and we should just implement it on, on, on a blockchain. So it turns out that doesn't work. Um, it doesn't work for um, uh, two uh, two reasons, right? So the first reason is that um, you know um, you know the, the the way to think about a modern um, you know uh, um, you know smart contract blockchain like Ethereum is that um, uh, it is a computer, right? But the second thing to note is that it's an extremely slow computer. It's slower than maybe any computer you've ever uh, interacted with, maybe like a computer from the 1970s or, or or sort of something like that. And when you think about um, you know a modern limit order book in a liquid asset. You may have instances where, you know, um, uh, traders are sort of frequently updating their orders. You might have, uh, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of messages in a second, right? So, um, you know, where we are now, modern blockchains, for the most part, do not have the capacity to deal with that, right? So the first issue was, uh, was, was computational. The second issue, um, uh, which is, I, I think, um, uh, um, uh, maybe more interesting even and in, in, in deeper, is um, uh, ha has to do with, with the nature of how exchanges operate. 
in that, um, uh, of course, there are mechanisms for, you know, let's say or, an organic seller to sell an asset to, to someone, you know, who's an organic buyer who has sort of natural demand. But um, uh, for that to work, they are typically intermediated by market makers, right? So if uh, um, uh, Fahad, if, if, if you're coming to sell and Andreas um, uh, wants to buy, likely you do not arrive at exactly the same time. And I might be a market maker and I'm going to step in the middle uh, uh, and I'm going to buy from you and hold it as inventory for a little bit and sell it to, uh, to, to Andreas. And, um, uh, you know, so, 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 so these market makers are kind of the glue that, that hold together that, uh, um, that, that, that sort of market structure. What was going on in the crypto world around, uh, um, you know, 2000, you know, um, let's say 17 to, to 2020 was at the same time that there was this desire to um, uh, trade in a decentralized way. There was also this massive, um, uh, um, you know, explosion in the number of tokens. Right. And, you know, we can argue as to whether they have real economic functions and is it speculative or Ponzi's or, or, or whatever. Right. But the, but the reality is these were instruments that were less liquid. Right. And um, from the perspective of market making, there's there's sort of a, a catch twenty two in there. On the one hand, for um, a market makers to be interested in um, making markets in an asset for setting up the models and you know investing in the fixed costs and the effort and so on, you need a certain amount of volume, right? On the other hand, if there's no market making, if the spreads are very wide and you know uh, um, so on and so forth. Um, uh, um, uh, um, you know, um, uh, people won't show up, and 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 so there's there's kind of a chicken and egg uh, um, um, problem there. So kind of the, yeah, the, the, the second the second issue that needed to be addressed is is how can we make markets without professional market makers? And Andreas, I see you want to jump in. Yeah, so a very brief pause. So for for us to cut, um, you, um, if I could ask you if you could try to build in a few breaks in your in your in, when you talk, so that we can have a little bit of a back and forth because. Uh -huh. That would uh, sound more organic, right? So because there's lots of points where it would probably be useful to ask you a follow-up question, right? Because you go over the points very, very quickly. And then it's more dynamic and it's actually easier for people to listen to if if there is a back and forth in the conversation. If, okay. if that's okay with you. So if you could yeah, try to fun. consciously stop after some sentences so that and take a breath so that we can that we can ask questions, that would be probably very useful. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, um, because so a few things I would like to interject here. Uh, so let me interject one thing. Um, so if I just to take a step back and to just keep it on a, even a higher level is a, is a blockchain itself is not a marketplace, right? So That's marketplace right. is a place where people come together and finding that and, and building such a marketplace to come together is, is a tricky problem. As you say, right? So liquidity providers have, have one role or could be one role how to organize it. But it's really difficult to to get people to agree on some certain terms. And maybe can you explain how how automated market makers solve that problem? Sure. So um, the spirit with, uh, with 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 automated market makers is um, uh, um, from the perspective of the the, the market making side is to um, I'll try to make it passive. The idea is we can no longer rely on these active market makers. Companies like, let's say, Citadel or, or Virtu or so on, they may not be interested in these illiquid assets. So we would like a kind of market structure that would allow um, uh, people to make markets without sort of having models and running computers and uh, um, so on and so forth. Yeah, so that's I think that's actually a really interesting component of it, because in traditional markets, uh, you have maybe in the US, how many assets do you have? 10,000 uh, stocks or so, 8,000 stocks that trade. But of those, only a very small number actually trade regularly. 
and there's very little liquidity there. And in, funnily enough, the market makers, as you said, that you mentioned, Virtual and, and Citadel and so on, they're actually active in the ones where there's a lot of activity to begin with, right? So here, this is a, you know, automated market makers possibly given give a solution where, you know, you can have maybe use capital and use use owners of assets to be the liquidity provider rather than professional uh, firms such as Citadel and Virtual. So explain, how does this work? How, so on a very, very high level, how does an automated market maker actually operate? So the origins of uh, this stuff is in um, this world of prediction markets, where there was sort of the same problem. Um, the, the idea of prediction markets was, let's have corporations set up markets to um, uh, you know, place bets on events of interest. For example, is it going to rain next week, right? And so by trading contracts, which would pay off whether it rains or, or, or whether it doesn't, you know, some, someone could sort of uh, uh, learn about that. Now, the immediate problem is in, in that context, you need market makers as well. So in um, you know, sort of starting in that literature, they started building um, these kind of rule-based market makers, where rather than you know, deciding when to provide liquidity and how to do that, in a sort of discretionary, sort of model-driven fashion, the mechanism pre-specifies it with formulas. So it's almost like a bookie. Is that what you're saying? It, in, a, in, a, in a way, it's like a bookie, but a bookie that um, uh, doesn't have to think. So, so an actual real bookie would be adjusting the odds as bets come in, right? The automated market maker, the, the, the algorithm does it. Okay. I just want to, I want to stay on the mechanics here and take it to a, a, a level that is familiar to people who aren't even familiar with, say, market microstructure, et cetera. Um, so if I think about, for example, uh, putting in a trade as a retail investor in a traditional market, let's say through my online brokerage, um, I might go in and, you know, there's some asset I want to purchase. Let's say I want to buy uh, and I can put in a limit order or a market order. So could you just give context to our audience here? So what's the equivalent of like uh, that choice of limit versus market and how is it operationalized on Uniswap? Good. So um, uh, at a high level, you can think of a market order as taking liquidity, right? So on um, a system like Uniswap, that's what an incoming swapper would do. They would take liquidity. So that's, I think, very analogous to a, a, a market order. Now, um, a, a, a limit order, um, you know, again, using sort of a, you know, people use them for different purposes, but at a high level, that's the way a market maker would trade, right? A market maker would put in limit orders, let's say, to buy at a price lower than what they think it's worth, to sell at a price uh, higher than um, what they think it's worth. But the point is they have to make decisions about that. They have to decide um, where are my limit orders going to be? What is the price? How do I adjust it? And so on, right? In um, a system like um, a Uniswap, um, uh, once you're like, let's say Uniswap V2, um, uh, once you decide you're going to be a market maker, you decide how much capital to allocate and that's it. Built into the Uniswap V2 protocol is a particular um, a liquidity curve, which says at this price level, you will sell this much. At this higher price level, you will sell that much and so on. Or if the price goes down at this level, you will buy that much. At this lower level, you will buy uh, that much. So that is all pre-specified. And the only decision really is if you want to participate, if you want to be a liquidity provider and, and how much, right? Once you, uh, once you sign that transaction and you mint your LP shares, then it's passive until you decide that you don't want to do it. Right. So oh, if, if I may oh. then, in, in terms of thinking about the intellectual evolution of, of how this sort of came about, one of the ways that I think about it um, related to kind of what you were saying is that, so if I think of myself as the retail investor in a traditional market and uh, I compare it to being a, let's say a quote trader in the context of Uniswap. 
Uniswap from the side of traders is, of course, only offering market orders, right? As you were saying, basically, you, you use the term swap, right? Every single trade that a trader does at Uniswap, if I understand correctly here, is a spot swap, right? And so, for example, when we talk about something like buying Ether, what's actually happening is, well, let's say I have some stable coin like USDC, I'm swapping the USDC to get some Ether, right? And so all the trading is spot swaps. And so you're saying like the limit order side really goes into sometimes what we think about the other side of it, which is the liquidity provider or the investor. Um, but actually, then there's this interesting uh, piece in the evolution of Uniswap, and you alluded to V2, where we say that it, it's a, it has uniform liquidity, right? Which you were getting at um, that, uh, that, that the, the liquidity provider doesn't really explicitly specify a price point, right? Um, so could you talk a little bit then, um, uh, maybe a bit rehashing, but, uh, but providing more context on this point about how Uniswap V2 operates in terms of the, um, in terms of the degrees of freedom, let's say, that a liquidity provider has in terms of determining how to provide liquidity. Uh, and contrast that with sort of a traditional limit order book. And also maybe if you could lead us into the, the V3 world where um, the liquidity providers seem to have a little bit more discretion. Sure. So um, uh, let's, let's maybe start with, with, with Uniswap um, uh, V2. Um, uh, you know, um, when you, people usually talk about Uniswap V2, um, the, 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 the way that they talk about it is that it has this invariant, which is a constant product invariant. That the product of the the you know the the reserves in the two tokens is constant. I actually think that's not the um, you know that's not important at all. That's a little bit of an implementation detail. The the way that I think about um, a Uniswap V two, and I think the genius behind it is it's um uh, it, it, it's it's a, it's a little bit of an algorithm, right? You put in two tokens, and um, uh, the way that the formulas are set up is as the price changes. Um, uh, the the um, uh, the um, the quantity of the tokens in, in in the system will be adjusted so that they maintain equal value. That's sort of the uh, um, uh, the, the the fundamental thing. Fundamentally, um, what it's doing through the action of people trading against it, through people arbing it um, uh, against uh, um, other markets and so on, it's balancing so you hold the same quantity of uh, of both tokens. And if you think but, about so that, so if, if I can interject quickly, so then I can think about the liquidity available at, at Uniswap, say, let's say V2 for the moment, as a portfolio is part of what you're saying, right? Yes. It's a particular, it's you're committing to a particular portfolio where from the formula, you're going to hold um, a equal um, value in the two assets at any given price level. Right. So if I look at, let's say, a liquidity pool for Uniswap V2, ETH versus USDC, you're saying this is effectively, the assets that are there are effectively a 50-50 portfolio between ETH and USDC. That's right. So you can go to the Uniswap website right now and you can look at a snapshot of what the reserves are in their V2 um, wrapped ETH USDC pool. And you'll see it's roughly, you know, maybe almost exactly 50-50 in, in dollar value between USDC and, and wrapped ETH. Right. And so uh, could you say then a uh, uh, I think you were going into sort of the evolution of the thought process, right? So let me so 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 I think that's sort of the uh, the, the the key feature. Now, if you if you think about that a little bit and you do do the math, right? In order to hold equal value of ETH and uh, um, a USDC, what's going to happen is that the ETH price goes up, right? You're going to sell ETH, right? Because if you don't sell ETH, um, uh, then you'll have more ETH than USDC, right? Similarly, as the ETH price goes down, you're going to buy ETH. 
right? Because uh, otherwise, again, you couldn't maintain the invariant that you're going to hold the uh, equal value in uh, um, uh, each, right? And if you look through the... And so if I can interject, there's an important piece here, right? So like if I were to think about, let's say I'm a portfolio manager and I have a mandate to maintain a 50-50 portfolio across, let's say, ETH and USDC just for the sake of argument, right? Then exactly as you're saying, when the price of ETH goes up, now I'm actually overweight ETH and I need to sell some ETH. But actually, one of the important points that I think, you know, your work like makes a really clear point about this is that the active portfolio manager analogy I just used isn't actually what's happening at Uniswap, right? Um, it's the, so what is the difference between, let's say, me being an active portfolio manager who's, say, trying to maintain a 50-50 portfolio and trading at market prices versus um, if I were to provide liquidity at Uniswap V2, where ostensibly I have a 50-50 portfolio and it's rebalancing. I guess to maintain the fifty fiftiness. What is but it, but it's not quite the active portfolio manager, right? What is yeah, that? So it's it's a little bit different, um, uh, and 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 that's at a at a heart of a bunch of my work. So 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 the difference is if we take this sort of hypothetical model where you're an active uh, portfolio manager and maybe um, uh, you are um, uh, trading on um, uh, let's say Binance, right, to maintain this fifty fifty um, uh, split. We can sort of think at a high level, you're probably getting fair prices. Like maybe you're paying, um, you know, bid ask spread or you know some fees, um, uh, so on and so forth, right? But roughly speaking, um, uh, you can argue that you're uh, you're you're getting um, uh, fair prices. Now, if we go to the uh, um, to, to Uniswap, Uniswap is a contract on chain, right? Like there's, um, uh, you know, if, if I'm going to argue that it's maintaining um, a 50-50 split, um, there has to be a mechanism, and it, it turns out that the mechanism for that is arbitrageurs, right? Um, the, 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 the formula allows exchange of uh, um, uh, ETH um, for, for USDC and vice versa in, in a certain way, such that arbitrageurs are incented to um, uh, force the reserves to uh, um, uh, maintain that, uh, that, that balance. And um, the way that they are incented is if the, like the value of ETH, let's say, goes up and um, uh, um, the, the pool is um, uh, a little bit out of balance now, an arbitrageur can come in and by pushing it in balance, make a little bit of money. Right now, um, the second somebody is making money and it's in a short term trading context, you got to ask, where is the money coming from? Right. Because short term trading is in some sense a zero sum game. And the answer is it's coming from the, uh, um, the liquidity provider. So it's kind of like doing that 50 50 rebalancing, except there is a cost on top of it. So if I may interject here, so if I take the. Uh... The perspective of the average Joe that wants to become a liquidity provider, which is in some sense you can think about it, is because liquidity provision is passive and you don't really have to think about it. So what really happens is that if the price moves, say, in the broader market, is that I have to give up the asset that is becoming more valuable in favor of the asset that becomes less valuable. So I'm making a loss there. And essentially, I would make a loss in every single trade, right? Um, so... So why would I want to do it? What gets me to, what, what compensates me for that loss? So the flip side is that there's fee income, right? So on the one hand, you're going to lose money to these arbitrageurs who are going to make a little bit of money um, uh, um, pushing you back into the right um, uh, quantity of each asset at each price level, right? But um, uh, there's going to be other people, let's call them noise traders, which is uh, sort of a term we like to, uh, like to use in finance. And um, uh, those people are, are um, arbitrageurs are only trading against you when, um, when you're going to lose money, right? But noise traders are trading from you um, for their own reasons, for let's say idiosyncratic reasons, right? And so when they trade, you don't um, uh, um, systematically lose money on the trades, but you do systematically make money because you collect fees on trade. 
right? So I think at a high level, one way to sort of, um, if you squint your eyes, one way to look at the trade-off of an automated market-making protocol is you're going to get fee income and you're going to pay adverse selection. You know, we like to call this adverse selection lever, loss versus rebalancing, you know, motivated by the discussion we just had. And, 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 and the question is, which of these two is bigger? So I, I can think about it maybe as follows then. So as you describe it, right? So it's like, okay, so they, I take it, I have to take it on the nose. Every day is proc, the prices will move and I will lose against these arbitrageurs, but I will make oh, money. Sorry, off, Andre, off, Andre, off, Andre, off, can I just, 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 just to make sure that our audience is following exactly here. So I think one thing that's implicit that, that, that uh, we should make explicit is the automated market maker is, is, is providing a, a term of trade, in terms of trade, right? Essentially a price for this swap. And the price is a function of the uh, inventory that the automated market maker has available, right? And so uh, I, what we're discussing here then is that this idea that you can imagine that prices, you can imagine or you can imagine that the price at the uh, AMM is initially aligned with the price away from the AMM, but then something happens and the price away from the AMM changes. But the thing is that this AMM is still, you know, it, it's mechanically giving the same price that it was before. And so the arbitrageur is basically swipe is, is, uh, jumping in. So, for example, if the price of ETH has gone up, then the arbitrageur is going to start buying ETH from the uh, decentralized exchange, which is going to cause the AMM to then push the price up because the AMM is, is mechanically pricing based on the inventory. And now you're pulling ETH inventory out, which is going to force the AMM up. And that gets the, gets us back to sort of uh, yeah, line. I think there's a little bit, oh, there's also a subtle difference there too, right? Because in AMM, you, in, in a market, like on Binance and so on, you can change the price by changing quotes, which is something you can't do in an AMM, right? So liquidity is provided only at the marginal price. So no matter what you do, how much liquidity to add or extract, the price is not changing. So everything comes from from trades. What I was getting after is you will lose against those those folks that have to when the when there is a, a broader market price movement you lose against people right and you have to get the income from other sources so i'm um, I, I try to bring this out because if you think about how a market like a stock market works is precisely that liquidity providers try to avoid the loss against the arbitrageurs while only providing liquidity to the people that uh, that that have actually from which they can from whom they can collect the fees. So uh, philosophically, there's actually a big difference here, right? Because in an AMM, it seems like I'm willing to take a loss against some by being explicitly compensated for fees. Whereas on another market, there is a constant game where some people try to step out of the way when bad things happen. I, I think that's probably a fair depiction of the of the differences in the market in you know philosophically, no. I think so. Um, I would just sort of, uh, you know, phrase it as, uh, you know, maybe passive versus active market making. Yeah. Okay. So maybe we should then, okay. So, you know, Fahad, you have asked earlier about the difference between the V2 and the V3 version. I mean, on a very high level, um, how, how would you, how would you describe that, Jamak? So, um, uh, the, the main innovation in um, uh, um, a V3 is this idea of concentrated liquidity. Um, part of the issue with, uh, with, with V2 is that you contribute these assets, they balance in a 50-50 ratio, but in um, some sense, you know, um, if, if the price moves a little bit, um, you know, to maintain that 50-50 ratio, actually very little is traded. Right. So most of the, the assets there are mostly sitting there most of the time. The, the, the quantity that's actually being traded 
um, that like, for example, you may make fee income off of is, is, is very low. And so hence, this is very um, uh, capital inefficient, right? So the, um, the idea of, of, of Uniswap V3 was to um, potentially um, uh, reduce this, uh, this capital inefficiency by allowing one um, uh, not to just post broad range put it and say, look, I'm going to post a bunch of money and uh, I'd like it to be, um, uh, you know, sort of a 50-50, right? But instead post over narrower ranges, right? Where, you know, at, at one end of the range, you're going to be all in, uh, in ETH. At the other end of the range, you're going to all be in uh, um, uh, dollars. And the transition will happen in a much um, smaller range. So relative to the quantity of capital that you post, much more trading um, uh, occurs. So I think this is actually very important. If you if you think if you take a step back and think about whether or not when when if we wanted to use, say, an AMM for uh, so an automated market maker for for real assets, I think I think one thing is really important is that you always need to deposit two assets. One which would be say the risky asset like a stock if there, it would exist in tokenized form. Another one would be cash. Now, cash, uh, the stock is actually cheap because you have it anyway as an investor, let's say, passively. It sits around in your brokerage account. You can't do anything with it. But the cash is expensive because you have to actually take up a loan to inject the cash, right? And so if you have a more capital-efficient AMM, then that should be a way how you can create a lot more trading or enable a lot more trading at much lower costs, right? Is that, that's, that's right. I would also just overlay that in, in, in traditional markets, also there's extensive credit arrangements, right? So like when, when a broker trades on like NASDAQ, they're actually not putting up all that money, right? Um, uh, because there's like, uh, um, you know, there's, there's all these credit arrangements and there's trust and there's legal system and so on, right? The ethos in, in decentralized finance is basically trust no one, right? So if you can't trust anyone and uh, um, uh, you need um, uh, these assets and reserves, well, the only way to do it is to actually post them. Right. So, well, that creates, that's another question. That's another issue here, which I think actually many of us in finance are excited about because there's a lot more certainty. Um, you know, settlement risk is reduced. Um, this, this actually is a real problem in markets, as we know, right? So there's millions every day that don't get settled properly, which creates risk and cost. Right? We, we knew this from the Robin Hood episode where Robin Hood at some point couldn't post enough capital to secure their positions, the trades that they may be engaged in. That's not a problem in, in DeFi as such. There's others, but you know that's yeah. No, I, I I think you could argue. I mean, you could also argue that um, prov providing credit, I think, makes a lot of things more uh, more more capital efficient. Um, so uh, you know, I think um, Robin Hood was definitely um, uh, an instance where it, where it sort of broke down. Um, uh, but you know, uh, I'm 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 personally a little bit on the fence of, of of whether that's good and bad. I think there 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 are pros and cons. But the reality is, in the blockchain world, it's not even an option. So maybe we should try to circle back now to your your specific paper that uh, that you've written here and that we want to discuss a little bit. I mean, you have done many papers, of course, in this space, but um, you know, I want to I want to talk about the one that you've done here, which helps us, I think, understand the economic mechanisms and the uh, the risk mechanisms a lot better. So. Can you run us through the basic idea that you have here? And, and maybe I'm just going to, you know, start from the from maybe trying to be a little more lay as a lay person here. So, so Shiamak has written a paper with with a with a number of co-authors on uh, trying to translate essentially how we think about automated market makers and the automated process of the liquidity provision in terms of the risk return balancing in terms of a of a portfolio strategy. So, I mean, this may be a little too squishy for you, but so maybe how about you, you explain 
first how you think of the how you try to translate this function into into a trading strategy. Okay, so let, let me just sort of uh, um, uh, start from the beginning, which is what is the question we want to answer, right? The question we want to answer is, uh, is, it, is it a good idea to be a liquidity provider? Like, what are the economics of a liquidity provider, right? And if you, um, uh, if you sort of, um, uh, you know, sort of start out and look at what is the profit and loss of a liquidity provider, it turns out that the number one thing that is the most important thing is uh, um, uh, um, uh, asset prices, right? So again, in, if you're a liquidity provider, you're posting assets into these uh, into this pool. For example, maybe you're posting um, uh, ETH and uh, um, a USDC. The the number one driver of your PL is going to be did the ETH price go up? That's it, right? Because if the ETH price went up, your reserves are worth more. Like independent of you know maybe exactly how much you have in reserves, right? If it went down, they are um, are worth less. But in some sense, um, that's sort of not interesting. Right, because if you really want to make a bet on uh, whether ETH is going to go up or down, um, uh, you should sort of uh, um, directly buy or sell ETH. Right. So what what we wanted to isolate was what's special about the AMM, right? And uh, um, uh, what is uh, um, what is unique about that versus just otherwise a uh, um, uh, um, uh, uh, trading ETH, right? And so um, uh, that leads to this idea of the rebalancing strategy, right? So the the, the rebalancing strategy, for example, wanting to hold 50-50 in each asset could be an alternative that you could uh, um, uh, um, uh, implement, right? Um, uh, and, and, and so maybe that's the right comparison for, uh, for, for in, in investing in the, uh, the AMM. Look at what your profits are in the AMM versus the, uh, the, the, the rebalancing strategy. And if you do that um, uh, um, uh, comparison, you see that your profit is different in two ways, right? One way is that you get this fee income. Right. That, you know, so, so swappers are coming in, they're paying a fee. You're going to collect that. If you're simply balancing on your own, there's no fee. Right. Um, uh, but, but the second way, which is the way that we focus on is that you systematically fall short of, uh, of, of the rebalancing. And um, uh, that is because um, uh, you're always being rebalanced at slightly worse prices than the rebalancers get. So is that a, is that a consequence of the particular pricing function or is this a mechanical issue? It's a mechanical issue for all pricing functions. Right now, so so so, what would change if you had a different pricing function? If you had a different curve, maybe not constant liquidity, maybe um, uh, um, uh, 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 something else. Um, uh, um, the um, uh, the the thing that would change was uh, is 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 exactly how fast you're buying and selling as prices move up and move down, right? But whenever you know you're buying and selling again, um, uh, because you know um, uh, it's only going to happen when. Uh, Arbitrageur comes in and corrects the value. You're always trading at suboptimal prices, and you lose a little bit. Right. So this is so this is actually a, a very deep point in the context of blockchain, right? Because essentially, the thing that's causing it is the fact that the blockchain can't figure out what real time prices are, and therefore there's going to be a mechanical formula uh, as a function of things that the blockchain knows. For example, like whatever inventory happens to be there, that's going to determine the that's going to determine the price you're trading at on the blockchain. And to the extent that there's a divergence between that and the, and the real price, uh, the liquidity providers are going to bear the cost of that. But then from the perspective of, for example, um, Uniswap, who would hope to have a lot of liquidity provision, right? So they, so they, so they basically have to say, look, we know that you're going to face this cost uh, lever uh, when, you're, when you're providing liquidity, and we're going to give you some offsetting fees. Um, do you have any thoughts in terms of sort of the balancing of those sorts of things? Like if I'm thinking about this from Uniswap's perspective about how I should uh, try to ensure that, that fee revenue 
can um, compensate so that I'm able to generate liquidity provision. Do you have any thoughts on how they should think about this? Uh, on how to mitigate lever? Uh, well, how, how to get the TVL as high as possible, I suppose, is, is one way of saying okay. it. So I, I would just start out with that, like, uh, um, I, I think this idea is, is um, uh, the lever idea is, is, is very sort of um, a practical and applicable. Uh, a starting point is that, um, you know, many times in DeFi, um, uh, you know, may, I don't know exactly what Uniswap does, so I, I'm not making any statement about them. But many times you see people will quote APRs and usually the APRs are just a Right. They say, OK, we earn this much in fees and uh, here's our capital base. So your return is going to be 20 percent. Right. And what we're saying is no. Right. At least for these AMMs, you know, yes, let's count that 20 percent. But also maybe you're paying 15 um, uh, percent in, uh, in, in this, this cost of arbitrageurs and you have to factor that in. Right. So it becomes a very sort of, uh, um, you know, it's, it's a tradable model. Right. It's like, uh, um, uh, you know, you know, um, you, you compute this quantity, you can subtract it, and you can make the assessment of uh, is, is the gain um, uh, better or worse than, than, than the cost I have. And it might be different for, you know, different assets, different tiers, different pools, um, uh, et cetera. So if I, can I interject, I, I would also, so I, I'm trying to understand the rebalancing strategy just slightly better. Um, I mean, in some sense, uh, if I would be a, a dumb market maker on something like Binance, so I just post a set of limit orders and I don't actually adjust them on an, on a regular basis, then the same problem would arise. Is that correct? Um, yeah. So actually, actually, I mean, I think one um, one thing that is not that different from an AMM, it's, it's different in a couple of subtle ways, which we can get into if you want. But um, roughly speaking, you know, again, there's a, a function where uh, um, as the price goes up, the AMM is going to sell at a, at a certain rate. You could accomplish the same things by putting a string of limit orders in at, uh, um, uh, so that as prices go up, you sell, and as prices go down, um, uh, you buy. That could accomplish something um, uh, um, uh, very similar. However, that's usually not the way people trade uh, um, uh, um, limit order books. Usually in, when you're making markets in the limit order book, you assume that like maybe the mid price is a, is a fair price or maybe you have a model for the, the, the mid price and you sort of hang out orders at, um, you know, to, to buy a little bit below and to sell a little bit above and you try to adjust it, right? And I think that mechanism of adjusting it is trying to avoid people running over you when your price is wrong, right? To maybe move it yourself a little bit as opposed to have someone trade against you, in which case you might, uh, you might lose money. But of course, the downside is it requires effort and it requires models to know, you know, maybe how far away to, to post, how to move it, how to keep your net inventory zero, so on and so forth. So, and on that note, um, I'm just trying to also understand. So there is a concept that the, the blockchain world uses and it's called the impermanent loss, although it really is meant, is really an, a permanent loss, right? I think we would refer to it as adverse selection loss in economics. And so what that really means is, so if, if I understand this correctly, but correct me if I'm wrong, is that I compare the, what I have, let's say I keep my money in Uniswap for a while or in, in a liquidity pool for a while. And then at some point I check what, what I have left. And then I compare that to, had I not done anything with my money and just kept it uh, in my wallets or in my, my, my account, if you want, without doing anything with it. So this is kind of like you compare two passive strategies in some form. Now, you you have you're comparing if I if I understand it correctly so the comparison for impermanent loss is a passive strategy but you you're comparing it to an active strategy an active rebalancing strategy so how should I think about the differences between the two what what would I have to do in this rebalancing so let's take a let's take a hypothetical example 
um, you know, I have, let's say one ETH trades at a hundred dollars. So I put one ETH and a hundred dollars in, in the, in the Uniswap contract, forgetting about the further details of how the price works and all. And so then after a day, I have uh, $90 left in, in my contract and I have 1.1 ETH, let's say, right. Um, so in the rebalancing strategy, what would, what would I have done and how would I do the assessment? So um, in the rebalancing strategy, what you would do is you would start out in the same position with the exact same reserves, right? And periodically, let's say, you know, um, uh, at the end of every day, you would check to see, um, uh, um, am I out of balance? And if you are out of balance, you would trade to drive yourself into balance, right? In other words, you would replicate. Out of bounds, uh, you said. What so so it, it, it depends on the, on, on the pool, right? Like it depends on the um, how the pool is defined and its liquidity curve. But let's say for Uniswap V2, balance is defined by having exactly the same um, uh, dollar value in those two assets. So at the end of the day, for example, let's say your ETH was, um, the ETH price went down, maybe your ETH is worth a little less, you would go out and you would buy um, uh, a little ETH and get rid of some of your dollars so that now you have to value it. Okay. Um, and so that, so your, your point of comparison there is, is not within the pool, but outside of the pool. That's what you mean, right? Yes, that's right. But, but that's also what's happening with the pool. It's just that rather than you looking at outside markets and determining the value, the arbitrageurs are doing it and, and you're paying them to do it. Right. And so the problem is when I keep the money in the pool, the money that I receive for the ETH that leaves the pool is, is sort of like an average over many, many different units. So it's a, it's a smaller price, let's say. Is that is that? That's right. So, so typically, um, uh, let's say the price um, uh, moves a little bit. Right. Like, let's say the fair value as determined by, you know, market consensus moves a little bit um, uh, down um, the, the price, the, the, the pool is quoting hasn't been changed. Right. So when the arbitrager comes in and, and, and uh, um, uh, um, uh, um, sells to the, uh, um, uh, the pool, they're going to sell at an off market price. Right. At a, a price that's a little bit too high. And that's going to um, uh, be realized as a loss to the liquidity provider. Okay. So taking a step back here, I think, you know, ultimately the, the sort of the practical question, which I think, Siamak, your work sort of nails is from the investor side, because liquidity providers are investors, right? So I can, I can put my capital wherever I like. I, 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 can, I can hold it in ETH, for example, directly. I can put it in a liquidity, I can put it in a liquidity pool where I'm providing it as, say, ETH and USDC, et cetera. From the perspective of the investor, what, how should they think about liquidity provision as uh, an investment opportunity. And I think, so when people talk about impermanent loss, um, I think actually uh, in your paper uh, with uh, Tim, Anthony, and Jason, you, I think you use a, a better term that I'm hoping is gonna sort of take the place of impermanent loss uh, as a term, because uh, I think it's clear what, what that really is. And I think the term you use there is loss versus holding. So I could just hold uh, uh, a bunch of ETH and a bunch of USDC in my wallet and do nothing with it. And I could compare if I had taken that and put that into a liquidity pool and, you know, check whatever after a day or whatever my, my holding period is, how much I make. And I can compare those two things, right? So it's a loss versus just holding it. What you're, what you're actually doing is you're, you're changing the benchmark, so to speak, from this passive holding, right, to this rebalanced portfolio. And actually, uh, I said, you know, I think you guys kind of nailed it. And one of the reason I'm saying that is because if we think about it sort of as uh, from, a, from a finance perspective, why would you just, um, you know, leave your capital sitting? Why wouldn't you 
you know, put it in sort of uh, put it into the market, put it in an investable asset. And so the, the point is that this portfolio that you're talking about as a benchmark, uh, you could think about as sort of an investable portfolio. I mean, there's a little bit of an issue, which is that USDC doesn't accrue any interest, but but you know, modulo that essentially the point is I could put my capital in an investable portfolio, right? And it almost seems like that's what I'm doing when I put provide liquidity at Uniswap, let's say V2 for the for simplicity. Your your concept is, is applies more generally, but let's for the for sake of concreteness. I'm putting my money in a 50-50 portfolio. That's not in an efficient market. Um, that wouldn't be an irrational thing as long as those the assets that I'm investing in are you know themselves uh, providing the the are uh, themselves uh, providing the the risk adjusted returns that they should. Um, but you're kind of pointing out well there there's a wedge between that in the, between that investable portfolio and that's what to me that's what lever is it's the wedge and and so it's exactly the quantity that an investor should be thinking about. Right. Like if you thought that you could, for example, actively rebalance your portfolio costlessly, you know, think of a very frictionless market, then then you go like, well, why am I doing this given that I have this loss? And that's where the fee revenue and so on comes comes in. But is that a fair way of thinking about it that, you know, the benchmark shouldn't just be what if I just hold my money in my digital wallet? Because why are you doing that in the first place? Shouldn't you you have the ability to sort of deploy this capital? Um, and and that's what you're doing here, but it turns out that there's this sort of arbitrage cost that that you call uh, that you call loss versus rebalancing, which again I think is exactly what it is, and it's a very clear term. Um, is is that a fair way of uh, putting it? I, I think you nailed it, and I think um, uh, um, you know uh, I think in the spirit of what you're saying, the question is what should the benchmark be, right? And um, permanent loss, loss versus holding, that's one benchmark. Um, uh, lever is another benchmark, right? Loss versus rebalancing. In, in general, we could imagine any self-financing trading strategy be a, a benchmark. However, in that universe, there's something very special about Lever, right? The thing that's uh, special about Lever is in some sense, it is a, um, uh, um, uh, if you want, uh, an extremal, um, uh, a minimal um, uh, um, uh, um, a benchmark strategy. Because if, if I look at the difference between the pool value and Lever, in some sense, there's, I've gotten rid of all the market risk. There's no local market risk, right? Like over short periods of time, right? Because again, I'm matching exactly the holdings in the pool. It's just I'm acquiring them at, at more advantageous prices than the pool uh, acquires them, right? So um, when I compare um, uh, um, impermanent loss versus lever, right? Um, lever is actually part of impermanent loss, right? Lever is the permanent part of impermanent loss. Lever is a strictly increasing process. You know, you cumulatively um, accrue more and more losses to these arbitrageurs, right? And the reason why permanent loss is not impermanent is because uh, it, it, it contains lever as one component, but another component it, it, it contains is over time, the holdings of the pool will drift from your initial holdings, right? And as that drift occurs, then you're going to have P&L simply because, like, you know, you, you're holding more ETH than the pool holds or, or, or vice versa, right? But, but that doesn't have anything to do with the pool. That's simply the fact that you have, um, you know, some market risk in Ethereum and Ethereum is very, is very volatile, right? So the special thing about Lever is it's a, a, the unique choice of a comparison strategy that gets rid of market risk and really isolates what is special about the AMM versus, you know, in general, just dynamically trading it. Right. So um, yeah, then thinking about it. So, OK, so 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 we've, we've discussed uh, the concept of lever. Now, if I'm thinking about it as an investor trying to sort of let's set aside the fees, which are supposed to, you know, ideally compensate me for this. Um, if I'm thinking about it at a high level as an investor, what are the um, 
like let's call it um, market uh, parameters that I should be thinking about to try to get a sense of whether I'm likely to face a high or low lever, uh, depending on let's say different assets that where I could provide liquidity. So for example, um, would the without getting into like the exact numbers, but you know using our intuition, um, if I were to compare like a stablecoin stablecoin pool like USDC versus Dai to uh, let's even say a risky, risky pool like Rap Bitcoin versus Ether. Which one is likely to have more lever and why? And I'm really sort of driving at kind of honing the intuition here about how people can 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 get some sense, you know, some qualitative sense about what drives lever. Sure. So I think um, the the number one driver is going to be volatility, the relative volatility of the uh, the, the, the the two assets, right? And I think the way to think about that is um uh you know um if you think about this 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 this, I, this mental model of arbitrageurs making money off of stale prices right every time the price changes a little bit they're going to make a, a little bit of money the more volatile the asset is the more of those price changes there are the more money arbitrageurs make right so i think um uh, um uh, that is the, uh, the 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 number one driver in something like a stablecoin stablecoin pair, you really don't expect the prices to move that much, right? So there won't won't be that much rebalancing done. Period. There won't be you know that many stale prices picked off, and the lever will be uh, will be less. So so these costs are going to be larger for Rapid Coin versus ETH probably than USDC die, right? Hoping hoping the pegs maintain on USDC and die. So can I ask just a, a much more mundane question? Um, you know, going back to the question about the, I'm, I'm still going to use the term impermanent loss because it's more, you know, it's commonly used. Is it fair to say in your, with your analysis that you basically identifying that impermanent loss is is underestimating the cost of providing liquidity? Is that, is that way to think? No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't use the word underestimating. I would just say misestimating because it could be um, a more or less than lever. It's like you're taking a lever and then you're adding some random noise based on, you know, the market. Okay. Um, and I think just to sort of hone in on that comparison, um, you know, I think another way to see that um, there's a whole bunch of things I think are, uh, um, you know, not good. At, I, I mean, look, in permanent loss, I don't want to um, beat up on it too much. It, you know, at the core of the comparison does make sense. Maybe if those are really your only two alternatives, you know, hold a static portfolio or um, and, and, and invest in this AMM, then it is a, a useful measure and it has some information. But I'll, I'll point out a, a couple of flaws. So, so number one, impermanent loss varies from investor to investor because it really depends on when you got in, right? Versus lever is the same for everyone, right? And if you and I are equal participants in a, a pool over the course of a day and we're getting sort of roughly equal e e economics, but um, you know our, our, our lever would be the same, or you know maybe our ultimate PL is the same, but maybe your impermanent loss is different than mine because you entered like five weeks ago and I entered yesterday, right? So 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 that's that's sort of one issue. Another issue we can see with impermanent loss is that impermanent loss is not path dependent. It just depends on when you started and what the current price is. It doesn't have to depend on what happens in between, right? Now, if we think if our mental model is look, there are these ARBs trading against us. And we're losing money uh, every time that they trade. Um, uh, what you sort of quickly realize is it, is it should be path dependent, right? If there was more movement in between, there should be more losses to ARBs, right? And if your metric is somehow ignoring that, then I would argue that your metric is uh, is, 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 is missing. Right. So if, if I can phrase it 
maybe a bit differently. Uh, this goes back to this point about like, imagine I were actively managing a 50-50 portfolio, which seems like maybe a more sensible thing than just parking my cash in my digital wallet. And I get, you know, a lot of volatility. I could buy low, sell high, buy low, sell high. I could, I could, I could be racking up some profits. And, um, uh, and, and if you are, if you're just sort of passively holding it, you're not right. Um, so in some sense, you know, lever is capturing this, or it's capturing the key opportunity cost, actually, right? And that's the point. And so coming back to your point earlier, like if I go online and I look at um, uh, yeah, some of the some of the statistics that are offered for these liquidity pools, uh, they do tend to show you like, look, this is the fee revenue you're going to make, or this is the fee revenue produced by the pool, right? But in, but coming to your point, like that's a bit that that's probably not that's part of the right that's part of the context that investors should be looking at, but they're actually missing the other piece of it. Which is, you know, maybe these fee revenues are really high because there's been a lot of price movement, and so there's been a lot of trading. But there's been a lot of price movement, which also means your lever is really high, right? Um, so you want to take that the, the 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 sort of the coupon of the fee revenue against the arbitrage losses, the lever that you're facing, and that's the that's the proper context for an investor. I think it's fair to say. Like to me, this isn't really uh, uh, about a convention as much as it is kind of a rational investor should be thinking about the opportunity cost of not putting their capital into uh, into an investable portfolio, which here I'm thinking of as just basically the equivalent portfolio, uh, except it were actively managed instead of passively managed. And so they got to take the fees and they got to weigh that against these arbitrage losses. Um, but of course, you know, it, it may not be advantageous for Uniswap to highlight the, uh, the arbitrage losses on the dashboard. Right. So, um, yeah, I think in, in, in my ideal world in the, in, you know, on, on, on like, like, let's say any DEX dashboard would be some kind of APR for the fees that you're generating, but some kind of APR also for like, um, uh, like, uh, you know, lever, like how much are you, are, are, are you losing? And in some sense, advertise, you know, it's, it's sort of like if you advertise one, but not the other, you're a, a little bit showing people the benefit, but, you know, maybe not um, clearly showing them the, uh, the costs. Now, I'm going to just interject one thing here as an observation. So, uh, Fahad, what you're proposing, um, in some sense, seems to be, if you are a market maker, right, you have to think you have to develop a little bit more of a sophisticated uh, understanding of where you want to put your money. Whereas if you are a mom and pop that thinks about, well, will I put my money here for the next you know, half year or so? Um, you know, mom and pop is not going to do a lot of active rebalancing either, right? So... Um, you know, there's a question of really of who you're advertising to and, and, and what it is that you're advertising, right? So I think we have to be a little cautious on that one, too. So go ahead. Sorry. Um, I was going to make um, a one other um, a comment in relation to, uh, to, to impermanent loss. Um, it also, um, you know, uh, w w one way that they're closely aligned is, um, uh, what the, you know, if you look at it from an ex-ante perspective, right? Like if I start right now and I say, um, what's my lever going to be in the future? And I say, what's my um, uh, impermanent loss going to be in, in, in the future? And I do it in like sort of an options pricing style. I take, you know, uh, expected value under the risk neutral distribution. Those are exactly the same. Right. So in other words, the, the quote unquote price, how much you should charge for impermanent loss or versus how much you should charge for lever are, are, are the same. Right. They're, they're, they're capturing, you know, again, looking at things ex ante, the, the same thing. However, the key difference is if you look at things ex post. Right. If you look at things ex post, you know, again, uh, as I've mentioned, impermanent loss just looks at the price, the, 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 the um, you know, the beginning and the end. 
So if the price, you know, at the beginning is the same as the price at the end, it'll say you've suffered no impermanent loss. But lever is a little bit more refined and, and will compare to this rebalancing strategy and will say, well, actually, maybe you should have made money. Oh, this is interesting. So this this brings interesting questions up for the theorist and me, right? Because it seems like if I want to build a model of liquidity provision, right? So then you now have to think a little harder about the the particular strategies that you have involved there that you're trying to to use as a benchmark for it, right? So that's that's interesting, actually. I think another thing that's worth bringing up is there's a whole different point of view about lever. So far, we've been thinking about it in terms of uh, maybe two points of view. One is comparison to an alternative trading strategy, and maybe another is uh, um, how much money do ARBs make. But there's a third point of view which really connects to sort of Black-Scholes and uh, options pricing theory, which I think is uh, um, quite interesting uh, um, uh, as well. Oh, yeah, we want to definitely talk about that part. Um, now, this one we have to... I would, I would kindly request that you try to ease us into really, really cautiously because, you know, as you know, we try to appeal to a very broad audience and not some of them, which will be very, you know, well-versed in options pricing and, and the details thereof, in particular with the, uh, let's say, the, the vocabulary that is even used, and some is not. So maybe we can start very, very cautiously. So can you give us the big picture uh, explanation, maybe maybe explaining a few terms of what the relation there would be? So let's start with with, uh, with a very simple option strategy. Maybe people have thought about or heard about, you know, European call option and the like, and then you can ease us in that. Sure. So I think um, a starting point would be um, to compare, um, let's say, um, uh, providing liquidity in an automated market maker with doing something like, uh, like let's say, selling a put. Right now, the, the details are quite different, but one thing that is the same is in a automated market maker, when you emit your LP tokens, you are committing to sell at a certain rate as the price goes down. Right. Again, um, you know, let's say Uniswap V2 as the price goes down, to, um, uh, uh, excuse me, to buy um, as the price of uh, ETH goes down, you're going to have to buy more ETH to keep the 50 50 or the ARBs will sell it to you. Right. So let's compare that to a put option, right? A put option, again, it's, it, it doesn't trade smoothly, right? It doesn't, you know, trade at every instant. But, you know, at expiry, if the price is uh, um, uh, below the, uh, the strike, you will end up buying, right? So, you know, if we sort of squint our eyes, in both settings, we are pre-committing to buying um, uh, at, at, at certain prices um, uh, in the future um, uh, right now. Right now, um, uh, you know, the great innovation of Black Scholes Merton, why they won the, uh, the, the sort of uh, the, the Nobel Prize is to sort of be able to sort of uh, uh, understand, like, how to price things like put options. Right. And um, uh, what they determined is that, um, uh, OK, if you're going to um, uh, sell a put option, then you're giving up some optionality. And in exchange for that, you deserve a premium. Right. And I think there's a strong analogy there with AMMs. Again, by committing to this liquidity curve, you are also giving up an optionality. Now, there's no, no explicit premium, right? If you go out um, and trading options and you go on the, the Chicago board to sort of sell some puts, you will get some premium right now. And in AMM, there's nothing like that, but there's the promise that you're going to get fees, right? So the fees are something in lieu of the premium that ideally, hopefully, would be more than the fair premium, Right. Now, just to double click on this in, in a little bit, how do, um, does the Black-Scholes model determine what the fair premium is for a put option that you sell, right? The way it determines the great, you know, sort of innovation of, uh, of, of Black-Scholes is, look, um, you know, 
put option has, you know, um, uh, you know, all things being equal, um, the further the price goes down, if you sold a put option, the more money you're going to um, uh, lose, right? So in, in, in that way, it's a little bit like, uh, like, like, you know, uh, holding the asset. And but but let's come up with a, a, a benchmark where we sort of isolate really what's special about the put asset versus dynamically trading the asset. And when they do that, they get to the concept of delta hedging, right? The idea of delta hedging is if you own an option, right, you can trade in a certain way to eliminate the, um, the, the market risk of that option, to eliminate its value going up and uh, um, going down, right? And what you'll be left with after you do that is the, uh, the, the option, right? So the analogous thing to delta hedging is comparison to the re rebalancing strategy. That is a, a, exactly the same thing. Right. And um, what would be the, you know, after you subtract off the rebalancing strategy, i.e. like after you delta hedge an option, what should be left is the, uh, the, the option premium. Right. And lever is, uh, um, you know, certainly the, the, the expected value of lever is the option premium that you should be due for pre-committing uh, that. So, so I think that's another view. Right. Again, drawing these analogies to uh, um, uh, the, the fact that you deserve compensation for, for giving up optionality and the way to see that is through delta hedging. Here also, you deserve similar compensation, and, and lever is measuring how much compensation um, you should demand um, uh, through this the same option pricing lens. I actually really like this, so I'm just going to interject. Um, probably not for the recording. I really like this explanation. I think that actually makes it very clear of how how, how to actually think about this properly. So. Um, this is almost, uh, to me, it's actually almost a better explanation than the than the than the details of how you actually described the the description before. So, so just yeah. So, um, are there dashboards where people can sort of look at like the expected lever uh, for different pools? Because actually, the point is, you know, when you think about something like volatility, um, we can get reasonable estimates of this. In the data, and it seems like that would be a very useful kind of metric to have, um, just as a forward-looking expectation. Um, so uh, I think it's relatively easy to uh, to compute. Um, uh, I haven't seen people with, with with dashboards for it. Right. My point is, it is the point is it is that easy to compute. So it seems like yeah. it's something that, that people should really just provide upfront. Um, there's a stronger analogy, which that um, lever is really like uh, um, a variance swap, right? It's it's really like a, a variance swap. You're paying um, a variance, and but it's it's weighted. It's being scaled by like a, exactly what the liquidity is at that instant, right? So we you know in in traditional financial markets and derivatives, people have the technology to to, to price that, right? The same ideas could be applied here, except maybe there's a um, there's not a, a liquid derivatives market to to sort of hedge all that. And so, if I may interject at this point, you if, since you're using the term variance swap, um, you may have to it would be probably useful to explain that too to the audience. Sure. So, in a um, a variance swap, um, uh, um, it, it's a uh, it's a derivatives contract, um, uh, and um, the idea is uh, there's there's two sets of payments. Um, uh, um, and, um, you know, if you're, um, uh, let's say you're paying variance, right, there will be periodic coupons where in every period you look backwards, you know, the last period, let's say, you know, I don't know what people typically do, but let's say like, uh, let's say it's, you know, month to month, you look backwards over the prior month, you say, what was the variance of the asset over the, 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 the prior month? And you make a payment to your counterparty to, uh, you know, um, uh, that amount. And then maybe there's a payment the other way. Usually, uh, it's a fixed payment. 
So maybe upfront you'll say that like, look, uh, um, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll go to an investment bank. You'll be like, hey, um, I, I want to pay variance. How much will you pay me? And they'll say, look, we'll pay you like I'm just making up numbers, a 10 percent coupon. We'll pay you a 10 percent coupon. And then every um, uh, um, a quarter you pay us like how much uh, variance was realized. And, and, and that's a financial instrument. Right. And uh, um, oftentimes, um, uh, sometimes that can be a, a, an attractive financial estimate um, to the extent that uh, many investors like to sell volatility. Right. Like, uh, um, uh, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, the fam most famous investor of all time um, or one of them, um, you know, um, Warren Buffett. What does Warren Buffett do? He sort of fundamentally sells volatility. He, he provides insurance. Right. So a, a variance swamp is a, is, is a mechanism to do that. Now, it can be very dangerous. You can have, uh, you know, enormous payoffs during, I'm sorry, enormous payments to make during periods of extreme um, market stress. But nevertheless, if you have a large bankroll, um, uh, you know, that can be attractive because maybe on average, um, uh, the, the, the coupons that you're going to get are going to be less than the, uh, the, uh, the amount that you're going to pay. And so I think if one were to squint our eyes, I don't know that we're, we're, we're there yet, that the fees necessarily compensate people. I think you have to do analysis, right? But, um, uh, you know, one could view um, automated market making as that kind of financial product, right? A financial product, which is a mechanism to allow people to, um, uh, um, uh, you know, basically sell insurance and earn a premium in the, in the form of these fees. And, and, and you know, maybe that's attractive to, uh, to, to some. So can I... <clears throat> so I want to I want to talk um, maybe about your paper um, and go back to maybe the broader implications of it. So one of the things that you try to discuss there, I believe, is is the better design of, of an AMM. So maybe can you run us through the ideas that you have there? So suppose just hypothetically, right? So you do your analysis, you see your lever uh, for a particular, you, you create, say, a time series for the lever that you compute. Um, what would that mean for, let's say, Uniswap? How should they redesign their systems? So um, there's a bunch of ways um, that um, people are proposing to mitigate um, uh, a lever. And I'll just start out by, by saying I think, this is, um, uh, I think this is the number one problem um, in AMM design. And uh, um, uh, you know, I think there's evidence that, 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 that others agree. So for example, um, uh, you know, um, uh, you know the, Looking at people like uh, Dan Robinson, from uh, um, uh, who's a, a researcher at, at Paradigm, um, and, and one of the authors of Uniswap v3 and, and so on, he you know um, has stated that the, the the top three design problems for AMM are number one lever, number two eliminating sandwich chain, number three reducing gas, right? So I think um, uh, this is recognized as an important problem. Um, uh, people are are, are are trying to address it. Um, let me give you a sense of some of the ways to. Uh, um, uh, address it right um, and, and again just saying this is an active uh, research area so one way we might think about is um, uh, incorporating off-chain information right so we, we know that the problem of lever arises because the prices on chain do not match their sort of real value they have to be mechanically moved by uh, by, by, by traders but you could imagine let's say that you have an oracle um, that is looking at the off-chain prices that's looking at what's going on in uh, the, the rest of the world and injecting maybe the, uh, the, 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 um, uh, the right prices, maybe you could come up with a more sophisticated formula for an AMM, which would simply adjust the price without trades based on um, input from an oracle. So in that sense, it would basically operate much more like a dark pool, right? So just for background for the audience, when we think of stock markets, we have dark pools, and dark pools basically take the price from other venues and just have 
usually transactions occur at the mid price of, of say the Nasdaq combined with the NYSE or the like, right? So they use another reference price. So what you're proposing here is really that in some sense, the price that you take price discovery as we refer to it in finance from other venues and inject it into Uniswap, but you have to try to build a model in which, in which the, you know, the, the, the liquidity pool is also then managed at that time. Is that's what you have in mind? Um, that's exactly right. And um, of course, if, if you had if you had a perfect or a perfect price oracle, is there still going to be an issue due to like the discreteness of the block times? Um, if your oracle was always the first trade in every block, um, uh, um, uh, you know, um, I, I think there there, there are um, uh, um, uh, you know there's there's a number of issues with oracles. I think um, uh, um, uh, oracles can be manipulated. Um, another issue is like, so let's say the Oracle tells you the price is X and a bunch of people come in to, uh, to trade against you. You need to move your price, even though the Oracle is, uh, you know, it's the, you know, some, some, some price. Right. And so, so how do you adjust your price in between Oracle updates? That's, that's, you know, um, uh, you know, a, a major issue. Um, uh, um, oracles are, are, are typically not, um, uh, I think, uh, uh, frequent. Right. So I think you're, you know, the, the time scales you're looking at, like on the time scale, they're updated every 15 minutes. Right. So, you know, again, um, uh, you know, I don't, you know, there, there, there's issues here. Like, uh, you know, um, I want to emphasize that the problem hasn't been solved, but one direction is either using oracles to set the price or, or, or maybe another aspect also is to think about how to set fees. Right. So one thing that um, can mitigate how much money you lose to arbitrageurs is how much you charge them for trading. Right. And, um, you know, the way that um, fees are set in uh, um, uh, uh, traditional AMMs is very coarse. Right. Like, I mean, if we go back to Uniswap V2, there was no choice. It was 30 basis points. Right. Like that's that's the fee. Right. Somebody came up with that number. Right. Um, now, with, with Uniswap V3, maybe there are fee tiers. Right. But it's very um, uh, um, uh, coarse. Like, you know, it could be one basis point, five, 30, 100, something like that. Like, you know by almost scaling by multiplicative factors, right? Whereas if, if we look at traditional financial markets, one way that market makers limit their adverse selection, limit being picked off by arbitrageurs, is that they widen the spread. And spreads in traditional financial markets move like uh, very smoothly, right? Like uh, you know, the market gets a little bit more volatile, spreads are a little wider, right? More volatile, even wider, right? And so there, there's agents like uh, sort of optimizing this, and you know, one way to potentially mitigate lever would be a similar type of uh, um, uh, um, uh, um, process. So, uh, could you say a little bit more of that? Because, for example, when I think about like widening spreads, now that's um, not great from like liquidity trader side, right? Like uh, that's that. So, so essentially, one way of saying it is that the cost hits the arbitrageurs; it also hits the liquidity traders. So, could you say a little bit more about how you would like when you talk about providing like because uh, you started by saying thinking i guess more carefully about the fee schedule and while you know there are different fee levels now say at uniswap each pool has the same fee for all trades so are you try are you thinking about something like having different fees for different trading activity uh, or or what, what exactly what is the direction you're thinking of in terms of uh, uh, let's say a, a richer fee schedule Good. So I think there's, um, uh, I'll, I'll go through a bunch of things. Um, uh, you know, a lot of these, by the way, have been proposed by other people. I don't want to take credit for, uh, for, for all this stuff. But one way you could eliminate fees is, uh, oh, sorry, eliminate lever is to simply set a very high fee. Right? If you set a very high fee, there will be no arbitrageurs, and so you'll lose no money to any arbitrageurs. Also, also, 
what? price dislocations, right? You'll also cause massive price dislocations. Like the oh, thing is, nobody will trade. Nobody will trade. At the right. moment, if, if, if my fee is like 100%, nobody will trade, right? But uh, also, I will lose no lever. Now, obviously, that's ridiculous, right? So I think it goes back to exactly the point you made, um, Afahad. In order to set the optimal fee, you need to balance um, uh, how much you're going to lose to arbitragers. You will always lose less if you set a higher fee. But on the other hand, um, it's going to affect how much you're going to make from noise traders also, from the uh, the, the um, idiosyncratic traders, right? And so, so that's why it's challenging, right? Is because you need to model those people. Right. And uh, it's really not clear how price sensitive they are. And, uh, you know, it's not even clear how to identify them. If you see a trade on chain, how do you know if it was an arbitrager versus a, a noise trader? I mean, people have, have different ways to guess, but it, it, it's sort of not clear. But I think big picture, I think there, you know, um, uh, this is a problem regular market makers face also. And just building on that intuition, I would suspect that um, all things being equal in more volatile markets, you want to charge higher fees. Right, simply because you're going to lose, you certainly lose more money to arbitrageurs, and probably the you know amount uh, of, of 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 cost of of losing noise traders, you know, sort of doesn't make up for it. And all things being equal, you probably want to charge higher fees, but it's it's not clear how to do it, and it requires a careful um, careful model modeling. But okay, so just a side question here: if you think about a not not a realistic scenario, but just as a thought experiment, if you think about the possible, if you could price discriminate against arbitrageurs and charge them, let's say, 100% fees, as you were saying, and somehow not charge liquidity traders, let's say 0% fees for liquidity traders. Now, is it clear that's a good idea? Because in a sense, like this, this is why I was mentioning price dislocations earlier. So basically what you're saying then in that world is that every time there is a change in prices in, in the real world, um, the ARBs aren't going to come in. And so the liquidity trader is going to come in and trade at like a wrong price. I guess it could be a favorable price or an unfavorable price. But is that, uh, that that's it's, I guess what I'm saying is it's not clear to me that arbitrageurs are all bad in the sense they do provide a service of like aligning prices. I think I think you have a good point there. And I think, uh, um, uh, you know, um, to sort of phrase it more um, mathematically or, or maybe more quantitatively, one thing you could look at is um, the mispricing between um, an AMM and let's say a, uh, a more liquid centralized market, like let's say Binance. And what you will observe is as you increase the fees, the, uh, um, the, um, that mispricing is, is, uh, is, is zero mean, it could be favorable, could be unfavorable, but the variance, the standard deviation will increase, right? And so all things being equal, um, uh, um, you know, if you have very high variance, maybe, maybe in the limit, you're right, that's bad for, for swappers too, right? Because um, the, the, the noise traders, um, uh, they, they don't like risk. And this is just, you're adding one more form of risk, which is, uh, you know, the mispricing could be favorable or unfavorable, but I don't know which, and, and maybe it's going to, you know, uh, cost me. You're right. I mean, if we take one bigger step back, right? So there's there's always a question, every market, and there's nothing to do with AMM so much as if you have a market where there is some form of adverse selection, somebody has to pay for it. Right? And usually the way we think about every market is that adverse selection risk of any form is always paid for by uninformed traders. Right? Because, say, market makers, and you know, if, you, if you take any model, market makers are usually assumed to be making, breaking even. And so therefore, it's always a transfer from uninformed traders to, tra to informed traders. Right? Uh, so, and you know, the question is really in a, in a broader sense of whether or not AMMs by themselves create more adverse selection. And, you know, one of the mechanisms that they're lacking that brings you me back to the earlier point that you had about AMM design is that 
So AMMs, so limit order books have the functionality where you can cancel your orders and disappear and re reprice at a new one where there's really no average selection created as such, right? Because, I mean, if unless somebody, you have the Buddhist model where somebody can be sniped. Um, whereas in a uh, an AMM, this is sort of unavoidable, right? Because you, unless you have the mechanism with the Oracle that you mentioned before where the price adjusts, you, you will always lose, right? And so therefore it's paid for by the noise traders. So that's, I mean, that's a, that's a bigger design question, but that's a question which kind of plagues all markets in a way, right? Because we always have to think about all markets. When you have multiple, in particular, when you have, once you have multiple markets and you don't have a mechanism such as, say, an auction, which has regret-free prices, right? So where, you know, the price is, you know, always right. Everybody trades at the same price at the end, so nobody regrets. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, in limit order books, by the way, also have not, the prices are also not regret-free. And in a way, an AMM is actually really just some form of limit order book, right? Yes. Um, so, uh, I mean, a static one, right? Uh, so, you know, this is this is a bigger question of the design, but as long as people want to use a market, it, it is what it is, right? So, yeah, I mean, I think there's a, there's a bigger um, uh, um, uh, topic which we, um, uh, we we can get into if you guys want, which is, um, you know, how do we compare things like, uh, I think the three principal things to compare are limit order books, AMMs, and frequent batch options. Um, and I think there are some, uh, some, some pros and cons to, to, to sort of all of those structures. Um, but I don't know if you want to get into that or, or, or talk a little bit more, because there are some other directions in terms of uh, reducing lever also that I think are worth mentioning. I mean, I'd happy, be happy to talk about the general big picture uh, items here too, right? So what, what I like, so here's, here's my take. When I look at limit order books, and as you mentioned it before, you have, you have professional liquidity providers in limit order books. I think the reality in markets is oftentimes you have market makers that, you know, invest in speed so that precisely they can avoid all kinds of, all sorts of uh, adverse selection, right? So they can avoid being sniped, something that you don't do in, in an AMM. But an AMM has, on the other hand, the opportunity for regular people to create an Im So you can actually use existing capital, existing stocks that are otherwise not used because, you know, high frequency trader actually needs to need to borrow the shares potentially in order to, to make a trade or they have to do, you know, have to trade out of positions to avoid overnight inventory. So it's kind of a really narrow application where these guys will be available. And then if the remainder of the market is not serviced, then that's not a good thing. Maybe either. something like an AMM. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, my main criticism of limit order books, I think I used to be a, a limit order a maxi. I used to think, of course, like everybody's converged on this market structure. It's perfect, right? Um, uh, you know, and, and, and that's why everybody uses it. But, um, you know, reflecting on it more, I think that the biggest indication that limit order books aren't the end state is the, um, you know, the, the fact that uh, participants have to be so sophisticated, right? So if you look at the way, um, you know, you know, let's say um, trading U.S. equities, like, you know, fundamentally, it hasn't changed that much in, in 15, 20 years, right? Maybe decimalization was the, was the last, uh, you know, big change. But since then, you know, you know, maybe there's more dark pools, maybe there's you know, small differences. Since then, it's, it's, it's been sort of roughly static. But the thing that has changed is participants on both sides have become automated, right? It used to be that the market traders were guys yelling, market makers, excuse me, were guys yelling at each other in the pit. Um, and then at some point, there were guys clicking a mouse. And then, you know, now it's all computers. There's, there's no humans, right? And, um, but also on the other side, right? The end investors, you know, institutional investors, they do, you know, they do not have execution traders anymore. They use algorithms, right? If they're sophisticated, they have their own algorithms. If they're less sophisticated, they, you know, go to their bank and the, the bank will have a suite of algorithms. 
And I think if you're in a world where, you know, um, uh, you know, it's algorithms versus algorithms, strategizing on both sides, that's kind of a sign that your mechanism isn't doing the right thing. Right. Like the ideal thing would be something like a second price auction where everything that incentive structure is the right way and you just bid your valuation and, and, and sort of go home. And, and to me, the success is, you know, you know, again, I, I don't want to you know, beat up on limit order books too much. Like, you know, I, I personally think trading in U.S. equities is great. Like it's, it's very efficient. Costs have been systematically going down on time, you know, uh, and so forth. But that doesn't mean, you know, we, we can't do better. Right. And there are intermediaries making a lot of money. And I think, you know, there's, you know, um, that, that, that's an opportunity to, to sort of, uh, um, uh, you know, improve designs. And I fully agree. So, so going back to my earlier point also, if you limit order books is they, they may work reasonably well for really liquid stocks where, in the sense of where there's a lot of activity. But if you look at the, the, if you take a much broader perspective of the world of trading, there's, you know, often, you know, tens of thousands of assets that can be traded worldwide. The limit order books of today with, with the high, with, with, with the high activity levels are only, you know, there's only maybe 500 or so that, that actually trade in a manner which is so ideal as we think about a great, a great ideal limit order book. Most assets don't either don't trade at all in limit order book, like, you know, bonds and so on, right? There's very little limit order book trading in bonds uh, for, for a large number of reasons. And among them is it's just, uh, you know, it's just too little activity to, to sustain the market there. Um, so the yeah so the arms trade so I would actually like to add one more thing though Sir, like about the the arms race that occur in the trading I think one also and this is actually a worrying part about the the way equity trading works is the segmentation of the order flow which is that and we said you know I, we said this earlier I said this earlier right so that the average selection has to be paid by somebody if you want the price discovery has to be paid by somebody and that's usually the uninformed traders. And there is now a movement, and in the U.S. it's very extreme, where all of the uninformed troll goes to a very particular type of trader. Um, they get a good deal for this. Don't get me wrong, right? This is the this is the wholesalers, but the rest of the market can't benefit off of it. And so you can argue that uninformed traders are actually not paying for the average selection anymore, and so everybody else pays for it, right? Uh, and so that's not a not a good equilibrium, I would think. I, I agree. I think uh, um, uh, some of the segmentation is, uh, I think it's, it's not carefully thought through in terms of the equilibrium impact. Like maybe if you segment, maybe some retail investors do better, but maybe bid offer spreads widen overall. I've seen estimates that internalization, you know, I don't know, you know how people come up with these, but maybe is increasing bid offer spreads 20, 30, 40%. And, uh, you know, I think, I think that's a challenge. I think on top of that, there's a second issue, which in the current sort of payment for order flow model, you know, there's there's large um, principal agent problems, right? Like the, the the people who are signing the agreements and getting paid the money and so on are not necessarily the people who are, are getting the you know the end economic outcome. So I think uh, um, uh, I think there 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 are um, you know that that is something that definitely needs further study. Yeah, I mean, even ultimately, there's there is a question of tragedy of the commons and risk sharing, right? So. You know, so one of the things I think that AMMs do really well is that there's risk sharing going on because liquidity providers actually, in contrast to limit order book, the person who is in front of the book who gets basically run over, actually it's not the one in front, it's actually the, the, the one who's last in the queue uh, on the best prize, actually the one that has the highest degree of average selection, right? And, and nobody wants to be that person. Um, and therefore, there's arguably not a lot of risk sharing or not an optimal risk sharing going on limit order books. But in AMMs, everybody is on the same footing. So everybody basically takes the same hit, if you want, from adverse selection. 
Naively, um, I think when a lot of people saw how V3, Uniswap V3 differed from Uniswap V2, there was a feeling that there's that there's a movement towards essentially the way a limit order book would look, right? Uh, I think we briefly touched on that there's a difference this uniform liquidity versus concentrated liquidity, but could you say something about, I guess, because you've been a little critical about limit order books. First of all, do you think that direction was, was the right direction? Um, like, do you think that was a beneficial change? Um, and just more generally then, what do you think makes sense in terms of uh, the structure here? And by the way, I think one thing we should say is that um, there are technical constraints in terms of how you specify anything on a blockchain, right? And so sometimes they might be doing something different from traditional markets because it's the, the technical constraints are too overwhelming, right? Um, uh, but, but regardless, um, yeah, could you, could you talk a little bit about sort of the transition from V2 to V3, the extent to which that was moving in the direction of a limit order book, and whether you think that was actually uh, a sensible direction? Yeah, so um, I think the way it's moving closer to a limit order book is that the strategy space is larger, right? So um, in a, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, Uniswap V2, um, your, your only decision really is maybe whether to participate and how much to participate, right? Aside from that, there's, you know, um, you know nothing to do, right? Um, at the other extreme, in the limit order book, you constantly have to decide exactly how many shares at each price level and, you know, so on. That, that's one extreme, right? Uniswap v, um, V3 is somewhere in the middle where um, uh, you have to decide this additional thing, which is the range of your order. Um, that's the thing you literally decide. The way I like to think about it is you have to think about how much leverage you want to use, right? And so it's not quite as ex fully expressive as a limit order book, right? But it's more than um, a Uniswap V2. And there is the potential now that you've increased sort of the, the strategy surface, there is the potential for, um, uh, let's say, more sophisticated actors to get different outcomes, right? So for example, in um, uh, Uniswap V3, um, uh, one thing that can be done is this idea of just-in-time liquidity, right? The idea of uh, you see a, uh, a swap in the mempool, and um, what you do is um, uh, maybe you frontline it in a certain way by providing liquidity, very, very concentrated liquidity, just to be fulfilled by, uh, um, uh, by, by that swap. And um, uh, then immediately after, you know, within, within sort of the same bundle, you have a transaction to provide liquidity, you have a swap transaction, and then you remove liquidity um, uh, right after, right? So you can, you can imagine sort of things like this, which are more akin to the kinds of uh, strategies that uh, high-frequency traders employ in, uh, in limit order books. Now, the potential downside of this is that um, uh, this can um, uh, have a negative impact on, on everyone else, right? So if somebody had like, let's say a mechanism where they could really identify on a swap by swap basis, is this some kind of informed trader like an arbitrageur or is this a noise trade, right? Like someone who's idiosyncratically trading and, and doesn't know anything. What they would do is they would JIT Right, just to fill the noise trades and uh, um, uh, you know ignore the uh, the and, and, and not trade against the uh, the arbitrageurs and and they would basically um, uh, you know um, I, I don't know what the right um, term for this is cream skimming or, or sort of something like that they would take all the fees from the noise traders but not suffer the adverse selection right so in the extreme you can imagine things like this now I haven't done the analysis myself um, it's it's not clear that whether these active you know hyperactive you know things like just in time liquidity are actually incurring, are they a significant fraction of the market, you know, so on and so forth. But I think, um, uh, you know, I, I agree with you at, at, at the heart that it, it's, it's not necessarily immediately obvious that introducing um, uh, this is better. It's, it's better from the perspective of um, people gain leverage, 
But in equilibrium, it could be the case that some people use that ability in order to, uh, um, you know, um, take more of the profits for themselves in a way that will, um, you know, damage other liquidity providers. Maybe eventually they leave the market and the whole system collapses. The tragedy of the commons. Essentially, that's what it is, right? <laughs> I mean, so in some sense, what you're talking about is like to the extent that you increase the degrees of freedom, the action space. And there are asymmetries in the ability to do, like, for example, uh, not everybody is, is running a node and can see the mempool at all times, et cetera, right? But you're saying, well, like, if people have, if you allow for more actions and, and some people have this, have that called an asymmetric advantage, then they're going to be able to sort of exploit it. Um, uh, but then what do you think in terms of, uh, I mean, now we have had V3 for a couple of years. And of course, Uniswap is thinking of the next version. What do you think the right direction is in terms of designing these AMMs? Um, I think, uh, you know, um, uh, the, the issue is going to come down to, um, uh, you know, uh, coming up ways to, to sort of um, um, create a, a lever. Um, I think, um, you know, um, uh, we talked about, you know, um, ideas related to um, uh, setting fees. I think one, one sort of, you know, first order thing to, to me would be to um, uh, come up with a way where, where like, uh, there's competition in the fee space. Right. So, you know, again, like uh, if we think of a limit order book, I think one very nice feature about a limit order book is, uh, you know, if I think I'm a better um, a market maker than you, um, I can simply quote a trader spread and I'll get more trades. Right. And so, you know, the, the analogous thing to the fee is uh, is, is the, the, the bid ask spread. And that's determined by competitive forces. Right. In, um, uh, you know, um, uh, um, uh, this world, there's, you know, there, there, there's not a mechanism to, uh, to, to do that. So I think that's that's one direction to think about. I think the, the vision with uh, um, where Uniswap going is, with, you know, with, with Uniswap v4 is this more general idea of hooks, right? And I think the um, I think you know to, to some extent the way I read that is the idea that look, it's it's not clear how to solve some of these problems, but let's have a framework with with flexibility that other people can come in and can come up with uh, with, with with ideas and implement them in a way that maybe the market will sort of figure out what the, uh, what the, what the right um, uh, um, um, mechanism is. And there's, there's, a, there's you know, um, you know a, a, another direction beyond um, uh, this idea of either dynamic fees or oracles is um, uh, you know, a, a direction involving auctions. That's, uh, that's, that's sort of another type of mechanism a lot of people have talked about. Just to sort of briefly talk about that, the idea here is to um, uh, potentially auction the right to be the arbitrager. Right. If, if somehow right now anybody can be an arbitrager and it's competitive. Right. But if somehow we could anoint only one person to be the arbitrager and we could sell that. Right. And the market is competitive, then ideally what they would pay us is the arbitrage profits. Right. And then, um, you know, we wouldn't we wouldn't be uh, um, uh, suffering uh, um, a lever. And so the kinds of mechanisms um, uh, people have, uh, have have looked at is, um, for example, you could say that uh, I'm working. There's going to be one designated trader. And um, if he's not the first trade in the block, then nobody can trade, right? And um, you sell that right. And you also maybe sell that right to the, per um, uh, and, and, and so, so basically that person will be the arbitrageur, right? Because since nobody can trade uh, um, uh, before them, if they're the, uh, the, the, the first person in every block, they have the right to do the arbitrage, arbitrage trade. And, 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 and potentially they should pay, you know, arbitrage profits for that. Now, of course, there are some downsides to that. Um, a one downside. Wait, 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 before, before, before you go, go to even that, just to clarify here. So, currently, what is it that arbitrageurs compete on? Is it like gas fees? Um, yes. 
they compete on gas. And um, uh, even um, taking that to the next level, um, uh, um, these days, really, I think within the past you know, few months, um, they compete at the builder level. Right. So now, our, like, uh, you know, the, the prior model was that arbitrageurs are these like independent agents. Right. And they're out there. They're looking for opportunities and they're trading. What's happened now is because um, uh, um, deck sex arbitrage is so big. Right. I, um, you know, I've heard estimates that it's maybe 50 percent of all um, uh, MEV, something of, the, of, of, of that order of magnitude. Um, that it's, it's, you know, maybe the number one source of, uh, of, of MEV, let's put aside uh, um, uh, what, what the exact statistics are, that um, uh, right now the, uh, the, the, the top builders um, are, are thought to be um, uh, arbitraging. And there's some, some very nice work um, uh, from uh, Mac Res, Max Resnick and, and Malesh Pai and, and, and people at the, the Special Mechanisms Group, where they've done analysis. They look at um, um, particular blocks that are generated around times when um, there are price changes at Binance. And those, those blocks are dominated by particular sets of builders, right? And really the only kind of explanation for that is the builders of vertically integrated arbitrage operations, right? So now even it's, it's, it's sort of even worse, you know, the, the mechanism by which they compete is they, they bribe the proposers, right? But uh, um, uh, what, what's happened is this is creating a force of centralization in the, in the consensus mechanism, so, you know, competing to be the right to the, the first arbitrager. Right. But so, okay. So, uh, what you're in some sense, what you're suggesting is being able to like move that bidding process from the sort of the, the protocol level to inside the DAP, right? Because um, they're already bidding, right? Like, you know, I see the ARB, you see the ARB, we're both going to go after it. And, but now we're competing for getting first on the block. And that means we got to, um, we, we got to basically pay the validators at the end of the day. Right. Um, and so that's the key. The money shouldn't go to the validators, it should go to the liquidity providers. Right. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Andreas. Yeah, no, I was just saying the so the builders are essentially doing it independently, right? And so once you get to build the block, you actually get to do the ARP and then you just pass on the your your uh you know extracted value to the to the validator, as you said, right? This gets to a, a point that like um so uh, but I think Siamak, you were describing the idea that somehow the the fee uh, at the level of the of the liquidity pool uh determines priority in the block. And you know I, I, this this relates to even like when people talk about the sequence you know uh, forcing some order to the sequence of trades in in a dex in a liquidity pool and so on. But I've always wondered about that. Because like then it's almost like because uh, I guess you're affecting the protocol with information at the DAP level. Like how exactly would that work? Like how do you how do you specify in the protocol? Unless I'm misunderstanding. So I, 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 from what I understood, I thought you were saying you're going to specify sort of the rules of the validity of the block. To relate to something like the fee that is paid. No, okay. No, no, no. I'm I'm doing it at the smart contract level, but let me be specific, right? So the way the smart contract, where we leave the Ethereum protocol, let's say we're on Ethereum, we leave the Ethereum protocol as it is, but we're going to change the smart contract rules of the Uniswap smart contract so that if um, uh, um, a, a, a transaction is um, going to execute, it can only execute if if, if um, the the quote unquote um, person who has arbitrage rights has already traded in that block. So that's something you could implement at the smart contract level. You could look at what are transactions that have already implemented. If the anointed arbitrageur has a transaction there, then this transaction can go through. Otherwise, no transaction can go through. Okay, I see. So, so but then you're basically forcing the builders to to, for, to to follow this order because effectively that means that if they were to not let this transaction be the first one, it's going to like nullify. Uh, yeah, exactly. Like that. So essentially, there's a flag 
in that first transaction and if, and every subsequent transaction can check the flag and so if they didn't order it this way then they're just they're they're not going to get anything out of these subsequent trans- like they're not going right. to get the gas fees so so the the builders no longer um uh, have incentive to they, i mean they'll just include it to get all the other ones right but you don't have to right. buy them you don't have to bribe validators right okay all right that's uh now there, there, so there's some downsides to that. that it's not sorry go ahead no no yeah no no you can continue so there's some downsides to that. In particular, you need to have a transaction on every block, right? And uh, you know that costs gas. Um, uh, maybe that actor could also do other things. Um, uh, um, uh, for example, um, uh, censoring transactions and so on. Um, but there's some issues there. But l- let me give you another idea also, which is which is not as extreme. Suppose you auction off the right, like most, you know, every pool charges a fee. Suppose you auction off the right in every period to trade with no fee. Right, you're going to say like, "Hey, for the next um, hundred blocks, um, if you win this auction, you can trade with, uh, with, with with zero fee." Right now, somebody will pay some amount of money for that. That person will naturally gain priority for doing arbitrage, right? Because they can arbitrage smaller opportunities, right? So it, it's not perfect. Like if there's a big price change, then um, you know, even paying fees, there'll be other arbitragers, right? But if the if the price change is less than the fee, then this anointed arbitrager can arbit, but no one else can arbit. Right. So and there's there's various flavors of, uh, of ideas that people have been um, uh, trying to, to explore where which involves, you know, maybe making someone distinguish be the arbitrager and then charging them for it and trying to use market competition to sort of set the price there. I'm just going to throw a monkey's wrench into this discussion here. Um, and uh, so, I, I mean, I, I'm listening to the to the debates that you have of how you want to organize this optimally and what kind of arbitrage and priority rules you could have there. Now, if, if you take a step back and look at the view of a regulator in this space, um, you know, there's already and, you know, there's there's recently been a paper released by IOSCO. The, so this is the international you know, conglomerate of securities regulators authored by the SEC, though. And, and, you know, if you look, if you read that carefully, it's essentially they're trying to bring all DeFi protocols like AMMs fully under regulatory control. They see like a DeFi protocol is like a brokerage um, and so on and so forth. Right. So essentially they they try to squeeze everything, you know, the round packs into a square hole. Um, Now, what what you describe is something where which would probably make most regulators, especially if you think about it in the context of how the current market works, where every minor change that you have to make has to go through a half year regulation and and common process would make them tear their hair out. Right. So I would like to I like to have your view, um, because I think what we're observing and what we should all be grateful for is that there is a lot of experimentation going on in the space where people try to figure out actually what the right way to do it is. So what is your view on how would you like a regulator to at least address this particular space um, of of DeFi um, AMMs? Yeah, so... um... To refer to the you know specific thing that I just proposed, I don't think that's that different than something like the specialist system at the New York Stock Exchange, right? The specialist system is you know um, there's a designated market maker who has special privileges to do stuff that other people can't do, and they um, they they pay to do that, Which right? I interject the the SEC also absolutely hated. <laughs> okay, um, I think more broadly, like honestly, I don't know. Um, I think um, I see both sides in, in one sense. I think the great thing about the crypto space is the experimentation, right? Like where we started was, you know, this conversation was, you know, I was telling you guys when I first heard of the, these AMM idea, I thought it was idiotic, right? And I was wrong, 
right? And how do you know that you're wrong? Well, like, you know, the market speaks, right? People try it, it works, there's billions of dollars of volume and so on, right? And you contrast that to the uh, the, the, the TradFi space where, where, again, fundamentally in terms of market structure, there's very little innovation and it's primarily for, uh, for, for regulatory reasons. So I think that's one side, but I mean, on the other side, of course, we all see the, uh, the levels of, uh, um, you know, scams and Ponzi's and so on that occur in uh, um, uh, the, the crypto world. Do, do I want that to be the financial system? Not really. Right. So, you know, I, I, I don't have a good answer to your question. Yeah, neither do I. I think I think the I think what I would like to think of caution would be, uh, you know, try to get the really bad actors and the fraudsters and just try to see actually how people try to figure out the tech of how it works properly. Right. There's a difference between the two, I would argue. Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways a nice thing about crypto is because it is relatively isolated from the financial system, you can experiment with this stuff and it's, it's not clear that, you know, you're not you know draining anybody's uh, retirement account, really, right? Um, uh, but I think, it, you know, as things get more integrated, I think it's going to be a bigger problem. Yeah. So uh, taking another step back, so um, I want to bring it back a little bit to the discussion that you had before of how the protocol level, um, so the, the, the smart contract itself should be organized and how it would interact with the protocol level. Is there room to say at some point that maybe we should move an AMM into, you know, into a side chain of some form where there's a little bit more control over how it operates and in particular in terms of the ordering of transactions? and the reordering of transactions is, is that would that be a better solution because if you think about i mean so one of the things that i worked on was was the violation of time priority which which is which is a problem and like leads to mev extraction um which is something that normal markets don't have a problem with because they do have time priority um is, is that probably something that we can is that would that be something that we could solve in within the blockchain space um, so I don't know if it's something that we could solve, but I think there's definitely a number of groups who are looking at setting up like specific side chains for um, a DeFi, um, maybe primarily for trading. And I think, uh, as you pointed out, there's a lot of degrees of freedom if you can modify things at the consensus level to do things like uh, like ordering and uh, um, so on. Um, I think there's other potential benefits in the sense that, uh, um, uh, you know, these uh, um, you have, a you know, Right now, like let's say the gas market in Ethereum is really dominated by DeFi, right? So if you have some application that has, um, you know, maybe nothing to, to do with DeFi, maybe you have a, you know, some kind of uh, um, a decentralized game or gaming platform or, or whatever, like you're exposed to like, hey, today was a really volatile day. Gas prices are really high, right? So if you can sort of segment stuff off and have its own side chain, have its own market for, you know, people pricing the block space and whatever, I think there are some advantages there. I think the principal downside would be, it, you know, it, it sort of uh, um, uh, breaks composability, right? In the sense that, uh, you know, one sort of wonderful story about DeFi is this idea of money Legos, right? That if I have a, uh, um, you know, lending protocol and a DEX and, you know, I want to do a liquidation, I can sort of combine them. I can write programs that, you know, maybe interact with like there's an NFT launch and then that generates a trade and, you know, so on and so forth. It's one sort of common, um, uh, you know, sort of platform. So this will break that, right? And it will, you know, sort of, I think, fragment things. And so, you know, there's, there's you know, pros and cons. There's nice network effects of having everyone on the same platform. It's maybe another way to put it. Okay. 
Well, you could also think about, you know, designated side payments in some form, right? So we discussed earlier in terms of the, at the builder level, right? So builders could be the ones that run the arbitrage mechanism. You could imagine a mechanism by which, you know, there is a, there's a collaboration of some form with an, of an IMM with a group of builders and the builders actually repay the liquidity providers for their arbitrage activity, right? So instead of sending it to validators, uh, you can send it back to, to the liquidity providers. Yeah, I mean, I think the question is, how do you create a mechanism where the you know there's competition between builders so that the payments are the right level and, and so on? But yeah, absolutely. Uh, now you sort of alluded to um, that there, of course, are a lot of scams in the crypto world, and I think Andreas sort of uh, pointed to the fact that, of course, you know there's a difference between sort of underlying technology and and maybe the players in the space that may cause. Um, some undesirable actions to occur. But if we were sort of to abstract from uh, the, let's say, the technical constraints that lead to these AMMs essentially intermediating crypto assets only, assets settled only on the on the blockchain itself, and to think about sort of the, the mechanism that is in place from whatever your favorite AMM as of right now is, um, uh, do you see value to that mechanism in more traditional... Uh, markets. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. Um, uh, I mean, the reality is, um, it's more expensive to trade on AMMs right now than to trade on, you know, centralized exchanges like Binance or Coinbase, right? Um, uh, so I think, uh, um, uh, you know, there's the, just to uh, clarify, when you talk about the expense, you're talking about like including the uh, well, okay, as a trading site, so you're saying the fees and the price impacts or yeah, I, I think fees, fees and spreads and that, sure. that kind of thing. On, on AMMs are very low. If you if you trade a small quantity on on Binance, you still have to pay ten basis points, right? Whereas on on an AMM, you pay five, right? Um, I mean, you have to pay the gas fee, but it's it's not that. It depends on how much you trade, actually. So they did. Maybe it's, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of the higher the, the, the. I'm thinking of the more advantageous um, fee tiers. Uh, I, I don't think the the um, uh, arbitrageurs are paying ten basis points. Um, although I, I I I should confess that I don't know. I mean, I think the evidence is that you know seventy um, percent uh, of the volume is like on centralized exchange or you know on Binance literally probably right. So if if, if you know, and one could argue maybe those numbers aren't real, but but the vol like the 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 market doesn't um, seems to seems to prefer centralized exchanges right now. I guess you know maybe that's the uh, the point I should make. I'm just going to defend the AMMs for one moment here because I think one of the problems with AMMs is also the learning curve, right? So, um, you know, going to Binance, going to, Coin, uh, to, to, to Coinbase or the like is trivial, right? You just basically click a button. You don't have to do much. Whereas if you want to do, if you want to use Uniswap, you actually have to figure out how it works. You have to have some Ether in your wallet and all that. It's actually pretty, it's, this, is not, this is not there for the regular person, right? So... Even okay, I mean, you know, um, uh, that's that's uh, that, that's sort of a valid point as well. Um, I mean, I guess one one piece here is the the fact that, like, if you were to imagine everybody who's, uh, uh, if you were to imagine like a whole whole, uh, yeah, let's say everybody who was trading at uh, at Binance just suddenly shifting trading at Uniswap. Um, it's possible that could be self-sustaining just from the fact that the fee revenue that it would generate would then incentivize a whole bunch of liquidity provision, which would then drive down the sort of price impact costs. There's a piece here having to do with the fact that 
I mean, I guess in the, the economics language, I'm talking about like multiple equilibria uh, and positive externalities, but it's like, if, if this were something that uh, was easy access to people and did not have, let's say, a bad connotation, um, which here, the bad connotation, I'm just thinking about like, if you were to put it in a traditional context, I think people just generically in traditional context have bad connotations towards crypto. Um, but if you were to just like take the mechanism and actually have it in a way that people weren't like, they knew how to access it, they knew how to provide liquidity to it, and they didn't have some negative connotation in the first place, then it seems to me the cost structure may look very different. Like maybe even, you know, you talked about the 30 basis point pools, maybe you don't need that 30 basis point pool at all. Maybe at lower fee levels, you can elicit a very a much larger volume because the amount of liquidity there is going to allow for the price impacts to be very low and people want to trade there. So I guess more of as a, you know, as, as a, as a theorist, if, if I can, if I can push that part of your, your brain, what do you think about the viability? So um, I, I think uh, I am a little worried about, um, I think the aspect, uh, like I, I think uh, Andreas has alluded to a couple of times where there's a source of adverse selection that um, the pools can only adjust price via trade that sort of doesn't exist in limit order books and somebody has to pay for that. So I think some modifications are needed to reduce that. But I, th I think as they are, I think um, that's a cost that's being borne in AMMs that like is zero in a limit or, 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 or much smaller, right? And so, so the, 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 the question is how to, how to mitigate that. Okay. But actually, so the arbitrage cost would actually go up if there's a lot of liquidity provision, right? Meaning that the price impacts would be much weaker. I think arbitrage scales perfectly linearly with liquidity, right? If, you, if your mental model is that arbitragers have infinite capital, which is probably first approximation true, right? It should generally scale with, uh, with, with, with liquidity. Um, uh, so the, but, but my point is there's this whole source of, uh, um, uh, you know, thing that because people can't move the price, like, you know, um, uh, because, you know, again, prices can only be adjusted with trades and that, that creates a cost that, uh, that, 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 you know, doesn't always, but I think we've talked about a lot of mechanisms to potentially mitigate that. So I think it's, it's really like a sort of research question, but, you know, again, with my theorist hat, I, I have the, you know, the same concern that, that Andrea articulated that there's this, you know, um, cost that doesn't exist in, um, uh, like a, uh, um, a, a, an order book with active market makers. And so somebody has to pay for that. Now, on the other hand, if we were trading things that are way less liquid, maybe it's a different story, right? Because if you're trading things that are way less liquid, um, uh, you know, maybe people don't know what the value is. And so maybe this, uh, you know, arbitrage, uh, um, you know, um, profits are a little bit more of a, like a theoretical thing rather than a thing that's you know, sort of constantly being realized. And then also, as we know, in, in, in less liquid things, limit order books uh, um, uh, don't work as well also. So, I, I mean, I, you know, maybe to be, be more optimistic, I think um, uh, maybe the, the, the place where they could work is less liquid assets. I'm just going to point out that there is actually, uh, so on the, on the FX side, there's actually experiments now running by the uh, Swiss National Bank to, to enable AMM type trading with tokenized uh, with stable coins. Um, trying to figure out if that's actually a better way to, you know, deal with FX trades and actually have them relatively immediately settled, um, you know, at the retail level probably and not so much at the wholesale level. So that that's an interesting idea, right? So that, I mean, this is very low volatility asset with a possibly very, very high volume that you can use an AMM there to effectively 
create a, a market by which you know cross-border transactions for retail and the like could be could be done very efficiently and very quickly. So I, I know a little bit less about FX also, but I think on, on, you know FX you know um, uh, probably the volumes are bigger, but it's also more a little bit of an oligopoly. There's a little bit like I mean it's, there's not exchanges right in where where people trade this stuff. It's more you know OTC. And so that could be another area where, where, where things work well, but that might speak more to issues with FX than, uh, than anything else. Yeah, this was great. Uh, I, I really enjoyed the conversation with you, Mark. There was I learned a lot about your paper and your thinking. It was, it was very, very helpful. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Thank you for listening. As a reminder, you can find additional materials on owlexplains.com and can stay updated by following us on social media. <laughs> That's all for today. Yeah.